Hey, I'm Liz. And I'm Alex. And we're both first-year Masters of Environmental Management students at the Yale School of Forestry and Environmental Studies. Welcome to On the Environment, the podcast from the Yale Center for Environmental Law and Policy. Today, we are so excited to welcome fellow student Paul Ring to the podcast. Paul is from the top knuckle of your middle finger on the Hand Michigan map and graduated from University of Michigan in 2012. He is currently a joint degree student at the Yale Law School and the Yale School of Forestry and Environmental Studies, where he's pursuing a Juris Doctorate and a Master of Environmental Management degree, respectively. This past summer, Paul worked for Our Children's Trust, the nonprofit organization representing 21 youth plaintiffs against the federal government in the Juliana versus United States case. He's here today to answer a couple of questions we have about this landmark federal climate lawsuit. Paul, thanks for being here. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me. So to start off, can you tell us the basics of Juliana versus United States? Uh, Who is Juliana and who are the other children represented? Sure. So the background of the case I find to be particularly interesting because it is really framed around these 21 youth plaintiffs who are suing the federal government because their constitutional right to life, liberty, and property in the future is being threatened by climate change. And they're contending that the federal government helped to perpetuate the problem by allowing fossil fuel interests to dominate our our energy-based system. And Juliana is actually Kelsey Juliana, and she's lived in Eugene, Oregon for her whole young adult life. And her parents are very involved in the Oregon Country Fair. Uh, They're a big part of the community. And the main attorney in the case, Julia Olson, is also living in Eugene, Oregon. And she was put in touch with Juliana or with Kelsey. And they sort of, or well, she, Julia developed this case and she was looking for youth plaintiffs. And Kelsey was somebody who came to mind immediately. The other plaintiffs, the other 21 plaintiffs, come from around the country, although 11 of them are actually in Oregon, specifically for jurisdictional reasons. They wanted to have a majority of the plaintiffs in Oregon so they would get the case filed in Oregon. The others, the other plaintiffs live around the country in Texas, in New York, Colorado, a number of other states, and they were put in contact with the case just through Julia's network and through Kelsey's network. And it ultimately ended up being 21, but I don't think that's the number they had in mind before they started. It's just sort of how things fell out. So can you talk about the three legal arguments behind the case? So there are three main legal arguments. And two are constitutional, whereas one is based on the public trust doctrine. So the two constitutional claims fall under the Fifth and the Fourteenth Amendments. The Fifth Amendment claim is based on the due process rights to life, liberty, and property that I mentioned earlier. They basically – or this claim basically relates to the fact that the perpetuation of climate change is likely to impact these youth plaintiffs now and into the future. And it's – the government's responsibility to not have a negative impact on those rights, even though the government doesn't have a responsibility to ensure that citizens' rights to life, liberty, and property are upheld, they do have a responsibility not to negatively impact those rights. And so the claim is that the government has actively impacted these rights for the youth plaintiffs by, as I mentioned before, perpetuating a fossil fuel-based energy system. The 14th Amendment claim is based on equal protection doctrine under the Constitution. 
And this claim relates to the idea that there are legitimate ways in which the government can differentiate between groups of people, uh, but there are some that are historically wrought and therefore are less legitimate, in particular designations between races, designations between genders, and other things like that. And basically what the plaintiffs are, make, are saying in this case is that they're making an illegitimate differentiation between age groups, between youth and adults, saying that they're actually favoring adults in a way that's discriminating against youth. And there's a lot of doctrine behind – the legal doctrine behind this claim that maybe isn't too in-depth for this podcast. But basically the idea is um, that they're a suspect class that deserves special protection under the Constitution. And there is a lot of um, a lot of cases that have been filed in the past that indicate that maybe age isn't really a suspect class, uh, but they're trying to make that claim nonetheless. Then the final claim, the third one, is based on the public trust doctrine, which is sort of extra constitutional or pre-constitutional, and it actually goes back to all the way back to the Magna Carta in 1215. <laughs> so it's pretty old, and this. Doctrine basically states that the government acts as a trustee for a lot of the natural resources within the country, and its responsibility is to protect those resources for public use. And historically, it's been applied to navigable waters, um, anything that relates to lakes or oceans, rivers that can be traversed. But the youth plaintiffs are making the novel legal claim that it also applies to the atmosphere as a part of the water system. And there is some precedent for this kind of claim in terms of the fact that it's been somewhat applied to tributaries and even possibly groundwater in past legal cases, but it's never been specifically applied to the atmosphere. So it is a, an interesting new claim, but it's one that I think is really motivating nonetheless. Can you describe the work you did this past summer and your role in the case? I don't think I can actually talk about the particulars of my legal research for proprietary claims, but I was helping with the legal strategy and helping to do legal research to support the case. And I actually was working on several projects for our Children's Trust related to this case and related to other work that they do. So in addition to Juliana versus the United States, our Children's Trust is filing many state claims based on similar arguments. And it even has international component where it's helping atmospheric trust litigation-like claims that are happening around the globe. And one of my jobs this summer was to file an amic to help write an amicus brief for the Colombian government because they s just recently in April had a similar Supreme Court case based on youth plaintiffs suing the federal government for not or doing enough or for actively perpetuating climate change. And the Supreme Court came down in the youth's, youth plaintiffs' favor in that case. And so they were basically tasked – the government tasked – excuse me. The Supreme Court tasked the government with – creating a intergenerational group that needed to come up with an action plan to help reduce deforestation in the Colombian Amazon. And so our organization was asked to file an amicus brief to support that effort. And that was my first task when I got there, which was really cool. I really enjoyed doing that work. But my work for the Juliana versus the United States case was related to the equal protection claim. I was doing some research to help support that claim. But I was also really fortunate that I was able to go to hear oral arguments where Julia Olson went and spoke in front of Judge Aiken um, in, a, in, a court, in a courtroom setting. And it was cool to see so much of the community come out to support the youth plaintiffs. Um, and afterward, there was a rally, which was also a great thing to be a part of. 
What are those who filed the lawsuit trying to achieve, and do they realistically think that they can win against the federal government? Yeah, they do, and I think so as well. I think that the legal claims are novel but not unfounded, and they have a lot of legal basis, and I think the reasoning is sound. I think that the legal arguments are very strong, actually. That being said, of course, no one ever really knows how things are going to go in court. And there has been a lot of effort to keep this particular case out of court by the federal government, as has been evident from the procedural barriers that have come up over the course of the case. It hasn't actually even gone to trial yet. It's still in pretrial motions. But I think in addition to the courtroom success, the case is already seeing so much success in the public sphere in terms of how it's affecting and influencing social norms and just really getting a lot of conversation started about climate change action and just presenting the idea that climate change is really negatively impacting our youth in particular to the general public in a way that hasn't been really publicized a lot before, at least in my perspective. So I think it's actually working on multiple levels. And I think in a lot of ways, it's sort of one component or one piece of a larger puzzle on climate change action that I find really exciting and compelling. And it should be seen as something that's acting in conjunction with so many other layers of climate change action happening in the realm of science, in public policy, and in all these other kinds of areas around the the country and around the world. So if the children do win, what are the implications? What what does the federal government have to do? Things like that. Sorry, I think you asked that in the previous question. I just didn't respond. That's so. okay. I asked you two <laughs> questions at once, which is not fair. So. so yeah, of course. What the children are actually asking for is sort of twofold. One is sort of just an admission by the government that they did something wrong and they did actually impact the constitutional rights and didn't uphold their responsibilities under the public trust doctrine. But the more substantive request is for an actual climate change action plan by the federal government to phase out fossil fuels as quickly as possible. And that's something that the youth really want as their remedy instead of monetary – any monetary relief because really money isn't going to help them if they still have all of these climate change impacts. They want the government to do their part in making sure that those impacts are not realized. Uh, you mentioned that the case is in pretrial right now. Um, can you give any more details about where the case stands currently? Yeah, of course. So, well, it's very complicated. <laughs> <laughs> so there's been a lot of pr- procedural history, um, meaning that there's been a lot of developments in relation to where it's been, where the case has been filed and what's happened in terms of briefs that have been filed and all that kind of stuff. The idea is that When the case was first filed back in 2015, the government filed a motion to dismiss, meaning that it wouldn't go to trial because the the plaintiffs had failed on making a claim that had an actual ability to be granted with a claim that could be granted. And Judge Aiken basically turned down this motion to dismiss and said that the case could go forward. And the government – the federal government petitioned to – appeal that case or appeal that decision. And Judge Aiken basically denied the ability for it to go forward. Um, She has that power at at the district court level. And the government filed a writ of mandamus, which says that Judge Aiken actually didn't have the right to make that determination in the first place. 
And that writ of mandamus went up to the Ninth Circuit, which is the appellate level court. And the Ninth Circuit turned it down as well. And then it went to the Supreme Court. And actually, uh, Justice Kennedy, his last action on the Supreme Court was to deny that motion for the government. Basically, when the petition was taken back up to the Supreme Court after Judge Kavanaugh had joined the court, uh, the ruling came out that the Supreme Court wasn't going to, to grant the stay, specifically because there were remedies at the lower level and therefore was precluded from being heard at the Supreme Court level. And so basically it went back down to Judge Aiken. And this time Judge Aiken allowed the motion to dismiss to go all the way back or go up to the appellate level. So now instead of saying, no, it can't go to the appellate level, you can't appeal and having the government respond by filing a writ of mandamus saying that she that the judge was incorrect in being in doing that. She actually did allow it to go forward. So now what will happen is if the appellate court decides that the motion to dismiss should be approved, then the case won't be allowed to go to trial. So it is actually a, a part of – or it is a period in time when the case is at risk of not being able to go to trial. But myself and the plaintiffs are all holding out hope that it will be – that the, the appellate level, the, the Ninth Circuit, will deny the motion to dismiss. Okay, so what role do you think litigation like this has in the fight against climate change? Well, I think I touched on this before, but I think lit climate change litigation is one part of an overall solution. And I am really motivated by it because it specifically points to the fact that climate change is a social justice issue. And the people who are being impacted by it the most tend to be the people who contributed to the problem the least. And this could be youth, it could be indigenous communities, it could be coastal communities in small island developing states, a lot of different demographics that really haven't emitted greenhouse gases to the same extent as a lot of first world developing, developed nations who are likely to be able or are likely to be more sheltered by, from the impacts of climate change. And while I think that a lot of work is important and necessary for climate change action, both in the mitigation and the adaptation realms and even loss and damages, this case really points to that ethical argument in a way that I find truly compelling and is something that really motivates me and makes me want to put as much effort as I can into supporting it. And along those same lines, um, what is something that makes you feel hopeful about the future? A lot makes me feel hopeful about the future, I think, being at the forestry school <laughs> with people like you doing amazing work. As I mentioned, I don't think that litigation is the only answer. And being surrounded by people who are working on environmental work and particularly climate change work in a lot of different realms makes me feel as though there is this larger coalition that's really active and doing work to benefit our planet and all the people and animals and plants on it. And I think increased media attention has also been making me more hopeful. I know the New York Times has recently released has recently released um, articles about the new I international intergovernmental panel on climate change report, as well as the new federal agency compilation report about climate change impacts in the United States. And I think that those kinds of reports are starting to bring attention to the issue and the fact that it's becoming and has been very serious. But maybe a lot of people haven't been recognizing that up until now. 
That was great. Um, before we end, there's a few questions we like to ask all of our um, podcast guests that are not necessarily related to the environment, just more about you. Um, so the first question is, what is a book that you would recommend to our listeners? Ooh, <laughs> that's a really good question. Oh, I would have prepared if I had known. <laughs> there's so many books I would recommend, but off the top of my head, I'd always recommend Kazuo Guru. Uh, so <laughs> picking which book of his I would recommend. It depends on the day, but I think today I would recommend Artist of the Floating World, which is about a Japanese propaganda artist after World War II and him grappling with the impact of his own work and the implications of his work because a lot of propaganda art was used, art was used to s- encourage Japanese support for the war effort. And after the war, a lot of Japanese citizens felt very brainwashed uh, in terms of the art that artwork that they were seeing. And a lot of blame was put on these artists. And in fact, a lot of them committed suicide. And the story is about him and his relation to his family and his relation to his country and his relation to his art. And it's beautiful. And I love it. And just as a side note, <laughs> Kazuo Ishiguro recently won the Nobel Prize in Literature. And I discovered this as I was walking around a bookstore because I saw a bunch of little stands that had his books on them. And I was like, oh, my gosh, another Kazuo Ishiguro book. He's my favorite author. That's so cool. And then I looked at the covers closer and they had a big Nobel Prize on them. (laughs) And that's how I found out that he won. And it was really exciting. Awesome. Um, (laughs) That's great. And then the second question is um, what kind of media do you consume? So that could be – Websites, podcasts, TV shows—just something, something fun or interesting or enjoyable that that you would talk about. Well, I don't consume a lot of TV shows while I'm in school. <laughs> Although I have been recently recommended *The Good Place* by a good friend of mine. <laughs> Thanks, Alex. You're welcome. <laughs> and I think what I do the most of when I'm at school is just try to keep up with the news, and I look at a number of different news sources. Predominantly the New York Times, but I also try to look at the Wall Street Journal and sometimes Fox News and other places as well just to see different perspectives and how other people all over the country and the world are thinking about what's happening in the country and in the world. Great. Thank you. So that does it for this week's podcast. Uh, Thank you so much, Paul, for speaking with us. Yeah. Thank you again for having me. You can find out more about the Yale Center for Environmental Law and Policy at envirocenter.yale.edu. And you can also follow us on Twitter at Yale Enviro.